Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Books Live from the Grand Library, the Dean and PJ. He's PJ. Hello there. I'm the Dean, and we are the Books Boys. The one and only. This is the Books Boys show. Get it? Buy it? Books. We're joined, of course, by little Alfred. There he is. Good Lord. PJ, it's episode 16. Sweet 16, and we will not comment on our kissing status uh, as the, uh, uh, the real slang goes. PJ, how are you? Yeah, very well. I'm in... I'm in Ireland now, so we're in the same country, but I'm in a very far and secluded forest. Well, not as secluded, so I'm near Galway. You've gone but very a... far south, um, but mm. uh, we're going to do a pilgrimage. There's going to be a little pilgrimage, and, and I'm going to come, gonna come visit you in the next two weeks. So You are with our, with our mutual friends. You're going a mutual friend, on. Playboy Alex. We're gonna. <laughs> I don't think he likes that name. <laughs> We're gonna come down and visit you. So we'll have a little Books Boys excursion. Uh, get some, get some, some clips from the journey on Instagram. Um, PJ, I think we've done a lot of reading this month, so I feel like we should just get stuck in. Let's get, let's get to it. I'm, I'm still confused what they are. I've been reading toilet scrolls, trying to decipher the meaning of. Um... Uh, to try and decipher the meaning of, of Harry Potter and and the Odyssey and I have this Watson. one and it has like a, it, it, it looks like a book right it's got covers it's got papers it's got lines in yeah. and then it says yeah. you know Monday the 24th of January Tuesday the 25th of January and there's some spaces is this is this books it's it's a postmodern work on the um, on the meaningless of mankind after mm. the uh, after the you know after the Berlin Wall it's quite a classic. Yeah, it's it's called a uh, twenty twenty two the 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 postmodern classic. So yeah, there you go, guys. So get it, buy it, get it, buy it. Books. Oh, you said the cash raise. <laughs> I took it away from you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, guys. So let's get to it. Let's so, get to it. I'll go first. Can I put on my Irish accent? Oh uh, no, you've not been there long enough to pick, to pick that up. <laughs> Okay, okay. Sorry, guys. Sorry, sorry. I'm half Irish. So I'm He's half, half Irish, so you don't, don't not allowed to be half allowed. Half allowed to do that stuff. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. The first book I read: George Eliot, Middlemarch. I thought you wouldn't finish that book until the middle of March. The way you're talking oh, gosh. about it, it it took me in the end two and a half weeks, but I thought it was going to take me the whole month. 
Like it felt like month, three months had gone past. <laughs> I was thinking like, oh my God, I'm gonna have nothing to talk about on the show because I'm struggling to get through this one book. No, to be fair, look, it is 800 pages. It is a long book. It is considered uh, one of the best books of man and womankind, you know. I am shocked by this because <laughs> it's not, look, it's not bad by any means. It's not bad. I should stress but it's also not brilliant. I mean, Silas Marner was better. I give Silas Marner a glowing review. George Eliot has written good books. The Mill and the Floss, well, the, le- the less said the better. But Silas Marner was, was very good, you know? And this, this felt like it just didn't need to be 800 pages. Maybe you could have cut it into like a third of that amount. And it would have been a nice little novel. Um, but let me tell you about Middlemarch. Middlemarch is a crazy town where everyone is obsessed with doctors. Okay, that's my main takeaway from this book. <laughs> my main takeaway is ever it's a it's a small village. Like they're all living in these Victorian little towns, and there's like four different doctors, and everybody's really concerned about like who your doctor is and how much business are the local doctors getting, and there's not enough business to go around. So let's be very concerned about which doctor you go to when you get ill. Like I, I've For never. Sense. Yeah, but they've got nothing else going on. They're very, very concerned about the medical man. And there's a banker, um, Bilstrud, and he's going to get a hospital built. And it's all very like, which doctors are going to be running the hospital? Is it the physicians or is it the the more general (laughs) practitioner kind? It's a strange concern for the average man, you know? It's just, I find it bizarre. These were were Victorian times, then, you know, these are desperate times you know where you know <laughs> well yeah when you're having a medical emergency on a weekly basis then i guess uh, it, 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 it doesn't matter so we get a good and it's supposed to be it. it's supposed to be a great example of realism so i think literally instead of talking about cowboys and what have you not you talk about the average problem mm. of mankind probably where you're going to get your next leg operation for wow. or, or whatever it was my other problem with it is it just has too many stories that eventually intersect but and everyone's got similar names like Lewick and Lydgate and List Bulstrode and all, all these names that are very similar to other names. And it gets, it gets a bit confusing. Um, but, you know, the, the good thing is it gives us a lot of, of, of interesting um, Ladislaw and Lewick and Lydgate. I mean, come on. But it gives us um, an interesting insight into family life. We actually see a lot of couples and we see some really lovely, caring, you know, lovely couples that are so good to each other. And then we see, like, you know, ones that aren't. And that's the, that's the, the bit that I enjoyed the most. But I'm going to tell you my absolute favorite bit, because it's going to lead into our sponsor, PJ. I've been, I've been working on a business oh. enterprise uh, for us oh. this week. So there's a nice bit near the beginning um, where they play the slang versus poetry card game. So you will say oh, anything, mercy. Fred, to, to gain your point. Well, tell me whether it is slang or poetry to call you a leg platter. Of course, you can call it poetry oh. if you like. Ah, Miss Rosie, you don't know Homer from slang. I shall invent a new game. I shall write bits of slang and poetry on slips and give them to you to separate. And dear me, how amusing it is to hear you young people talk. So this is what the youths are working on, uh, PJ. They're they're separating uh, slang from poetry on little slips of paper. So tell tell Monopoly to, you know, go into some (laughs) other kind of business, like fried chips, because this game is going to hit the town very soon. It is. Guys, slang versus poetry, the card game, .gov, and you can get that. That's our sponsor for this month's episode. Uh, I, need, I need to play that. I, I really do. But um, look, we get, we get some similar vibes to the, um, 
to the mill on the floss, you know, the little family life, and it's a bit depressing at times, um, just the usual that you would you would expect. But we also get some nice things. Um, there's, a, there's a girl, Mary, and there's a chap, Fred, um, and they're they're in love, and it's very nice, and she, she she's not a coquette, but she tries to put him off a lot and play hard to get a little bit, whilst being very virtuous and very lovely. And actually, her family know that she loves him, and they know that he loves her, and they her, her parents kind of try to help out, and the dad gets Fred a job and everything. It's all very nice, you know. Um, but Fred, Fred was expecting to inherit a lot of money from... Um, from a, a Mr. Featherstone from some some old guy and he doesn't inherit the money. And Mary feels very bad because as the guy was dying, he says to her, there's two wills, will you please destroy one? And she says, I'm not meddling in this in case I get in trouble. And of course, had she destroyed the will, her fiancé would have inherited £10,000. So, you know, she feels bad that she caused that. So that's why they help him out to get a job and things like that. So all the usual goings on. Slang versus poetry and ripping up wills. Just your, your day-to-day life with about four doctors competing for your affections. Just the normal, the normal goings on in Victorian England. Um, yes, yeah. That's it. There's also this chap. So there's this guy. Um, we 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 open the book with two sisters, um, Kitty and Dolly. Um, I know that maybe sounds a little bit, um, a little bit Tolstoyan there, but um, mm, Dolly. We have Do- Do- Dolly is Dorothea, okay, and she marries a Mister Casalban, who is much, much, much older than her, and treats her like crap. Uh, he he doesn't want a wife. He wants a secretary that he doesn't have to pay. <laughs> so he does a lot of scholarly pursuits, and he just gets her to like mark down his notes. Essentially, that's that's her life as a wife. And he'll wake her up at like three a.m. and be like, "I think it's time we mark down some notes." And she just gotta write down some thoughts for him. And even on their honeymoon, he you know leaves her all day while he goes like you know excavating texts or whatever. Um, and he has a young uh, nephew called Will Ladislaw. And Will forms a bit of a connection with Dorothea, so Will has to go and he's not allowed back to the house anymore. And when he dies, he actually writes into the will that his wife will inherit everything as long as she never marries his nephew. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, it's the, it's the tremendous love story that she wants to marry him anyway and forsake all her riches and all this kind of thing. So there's right. some romance, and I, I do like the romance, and it is yeah. a good book. It's just a very, very long book. And there's lots of subplots. So we have Lydgate and his wife, um, Rosamond. And Rosamond doesn't really like him. She's the coquette. And she's like, you know, Lydgate, I never thought, I would never have married you if I thought our life was going to be difficult or I thought we were going to be poor. And Lydgate's trying to be a good doctor and not just give people prescriptions they don't need. So because of that, he's not making as much money as the other doctors. So that's why she's saying, I would never have known that just, just, you know, just, just do what they're all doing and we'll have more money. And he says, well, we're going to have to sell our fancy plates and cutlery that we bought and maybe some of your jewellery. And she's outraged. I shall go back to mama and papa because I never thought my husband would make me sell my plates. And she's just out- outraged by this. And I would never have married you if I'd known we would have to have, you know, not a full set of plates. And uh, she's very, you know, very stuck up. And, and then she's pregnant. And he tries to be a good doctor and like, look after her and tell her to look after the baby. And she's off flirting with other men. And she like goes horse riding with one And she falls off what? the horse and she loses the baby. And okay, he's yeah, that's, wrong. I think that's a famous scene, isn't it? Yeah. From- she's not distraught at all. She's just like, yeah, whatever, who cares, next. And he's distraught, obviously. And mm-hmm. she's just really immature, you know. And then when he tries to like bring it up, she's just like, well, I wish I died with the baby. And she's just like very emotionally manipulative and making him always feel feel bad, it you know. It doesn't seem like a very feminist novel coming from a woman. I mean, In some bad. ways, it's not. But Dorothea, 
although she begins not very feminist, she marries this guy who's not really that. It's not he doesn't abuse her. He's just not a loving husband. Um, okay. With with a scholarly one, she becomes a stronger character later in the book, um, mm. and and Mary's very strong with her with her love Fred because she's putting him off and says, "And I'm not going to marry you if you go to the clergy. I'm not going to marry you if you do something silly. You've got to get yourself straight, get yourself in order." You know, so some of the women are strong. Um, but it is sad to see the likes of this one, Ro- Rosie, who's very much the coquette and very much, you know, mm. I'm just going to complain to my husband that he's not good enough all the time. And, you know, I wish I died with the baby and all this kind of stuff. And she doesn't care about the fact that they're struggling financially, but his emotional needs. She's just very much, well, what's in it for me constantly, mm. you know? Okay. So we get to see good couples and bad couples, you know, and we, we, we see some that are so, so in love that treat each other so well and always bigging each other up and always complimenting each other and respecting each other. So the, the parents of Mary um, are always respecting each other's wisdom and that, they, they, you know, just really, really good, strong bonds with people who are really in love. And then we also see the reverse. And, and I guess in a sense that is realist, you know, we get to see the, the good and the bad side of, of relationships in this novel. Yes. That's the whole point of the novel is to show uh to show a glimpse of society at the time. Uh, yeah. So that's the whole point about but realism. Here's our mill on the floss type stuff. There's a scene where Dorothea and Mr. Casalban have <laughs> argued. Um, well, they've not argued. She had tried to assert her own will. And he says, you know, Dorothea, you're trying to use your own intelligence, but I would rather that you just obey me, you know. Um, and she feels so bad that she's upset him that she waits outside his room all the night in case he leaves to like get a glass of water or something. And then he wakes it's up in like, the night, you know, and sees it's like the scene with the, the girl sitting yeah, yeah. beside her dad's knee. Yeah. <laughs> Hoping to have some affection. <laughs> yeah. And eventually he says, you know, oh, you, were you waiting all night for me? And he says, yes, I did not like to disturb you, you know, and she just waits. And that's supposed to be a happy moment. But I, I didn't find that level of submission to really be happy, you know? Oh, my God. Okay. Good so, Lord. yeah, it's okay. a little bit... It's got the goods and the bads, you know, but look, it's difficult to get with with 800 pages and about four different families all intersecting. I mean, a lot of the plots don't really tie together and then near the end they do. It's difficult to give a, a synopsis, you know. Um, there is a bad chap called Raffles and Raffles knows some secrets about people. There's some some bad blood in Will Ladislaw. He's not as pure as they oh, thought. And he knows oh, no. the, the banker Bullstrode was maybe made some of his money through some dodgy means. So we get some tense scenes with, you know, is this guy going to let everyone in on our secrets and do we need to bribe him? And he's a bit of a Dickens character, uh, is Raffles. Yeah. You know, he's a bit of a slimy Dickensian type character. So we get so to see... Might be a bit amusing to read it. I think he's there for a little bit of... Not even comic relief, but just a, it's something different because all the other people yeah. are kind of the same, you know. Okay, okay. Well, let me tell you about the book I read, uh, Dean. What I read was a bit different to a middle march. It's called O Monte Cinco by Paulo Coelho, the fifth mountain. Have you ever read some Paulo Coelho? I honestly, no, no, I haven't. So, Paulo Coelho is a Brazilian author who's famous for the book The Alchemist. Um, which came out in the late 80s. And he's one of these novelists that are also kind of, let's say, they, uh, they're very much, they write self-help books in the form of a novel or even spiritual books, you may call them. And now The Alchemist is, is a beautiful novel about a man searching for treasure in Egypt because he had a dream, but really it's about self-discovery. And all the books are about self-discovery, really. 
So this book takes takes a story from the Bible about the prophet Elijah. Okay. From from uh, Kings in the Bible, and it's basically about Elijah's kind of early life before he became a really a leading prophet. So he was born a prophet in the sense of he heard angels, but the parents didn't want him to to hear angels. So they said, don't tell anyone because supposedly if you could hear angels, you would then be a prophet and then be part of the government. And they didn't want that. Um, so but at some point, the angel, uh, it, it, I think he has an, an angel, uh, a constant angel, but then he has an angel of God visiting him at one point. He's working as a carpenter. And he says, tell, tell the queen at the time of Israel, who was not Christian, but uh, worshipped a, a lesser religion, a less religion, a pagan religion that we now call it. And this angel said to Elijah, tell her that this religion is not true, that the only one true is the, yes, Christianity. And that if you don't, if you don't submit to Christianity, this country will have no rain and no crops and everything will slowly die. So he tells her this, but she doesn't want to believe it. And she threatens to, well, she commands every prophet in Israel to be killed. So basically Elijah already feels guilty. He's hiding away at the beginning of the novel, already feels guilty that almost all prophets of Israel have been killed because basically he said something like that. And the whole novel really is about him kind of doubting himself mainly now he does believe that there is god because he's here at the, the angel and uh, yet he doesn't necessarily believe god is benevolent first of all and he definitely doesn't believe that he is capable of being a prophet even though he's being sent so he has to leave the country he's being fed by crows in the middle of nature and then is being sent to the um the the city of uh of akbar was this outside of israel mm. Where their and their religion is one of the queen. That's not Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's supposed to go there. He's just supposed to go there and wait for further instruction to come back to Israel and save Israel from damnation. So I know it may sound very uh, religious and maybe even I, I might put you off if you're not very religious. But to be honest, the book is not at all. I would say a religious book. It's not about it's not about Christianity per se. It's about the story of him not believing in himself and putting up with a lot of challenges. Basically, uh, he, he does become accepted by the town of Akbar because they believe they can't, they, they shouldn't kill anyone. They have to take anyone in as guests. And the people do start to like him, but because of him, let's say, mm, terrible things happen and a lot of people die accidentally. And he, again, thinks it's his own fault and he keeps following the, the voices from his angels and they seem sometimes a bit um, they don't seem to make sense sometimes in the sense they seem to be damaging other other people and the fifth mountain is basically the mountain that these people think where the gods live but mm-hmm. Elijah knows there are no gods there's just one god yeah yeah and, and there's just pro- there's just always this kind of dilemma of what he believes what the others believe and he falls in love with the woman who takes him up uh, and um and allows him to live in her house and she's a widow but he's also torn between you know succumbing to the love of a woman and being a prophet but the interesting thing is i god actually says in the book that's why i don't think Padre Coelho is necessarily liked by all christians because it's very diff, kind of a different christianity 
God says, you know, no, no man has lived properly until he has made love to them, to, to his woman. And uh, that's, a, that's an interesting thing. It's, it, there is a bit of a hippie element to the mm. whole, uh, to the whole thing. Yet the person of Elijah, he's still kind of living this sort of more of a, what, well, a lot more repressed Christian, uh, Christian pers- personality that we, be- that we think is Christianity. Yeah. Paulo Coelho always makes the point that the true God is actually not quite the church God. So I think, I'm not sure what Paulo Coelho is, but he always feels like a Catholic who's, who's also a hippie and is also, you know, he's also, he's also meditated on Buddha. So it's a very interesting kind of spiritual, spiritual mix. And but I just find the story amazing. It is an Avenger story in the end. I won't tell what happens more, but you don't have to look into the deeper meanings, which is about self-belief in the end, self-love, not about Christianity. But you can also just take that away and the end is just a great adventure novel, quite horrifying sometimes with all the death. But also there's plenty of, 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 of love and and I find the description, I find the description great of these deserts and the fifth mountain where he has to climb at one point. And I think it was a it's a great novel. Really recommend it's Paulo Coelho. Check it out if you haven't already, The Alchemist, The Fifth Mountain. Okay, sounds very good. Sounds um, I, sounds something different than than maybe we would normally read. Um, but sounds very good. Yeah, no, I I enjoyed it. I always like Coelho as often his books often help me in times of, of change. And I was just reading this when I was just moving here to Ireland. So I've been in Ireland, guys, now since a few weeks. And um, yeah, just just help me. It was just a New Year's kind of book, and it just mm. suited the vibe. Really recommend it, guys. Cool. Well, before I get to my next book, I'll just mention, first of all, um, that if you want more, you can get it at patreon.com slash booksboys. We are doing so much content. So you get this show early, you can, and you can also you can get a Booksboys t-shirt, you can recommend books for us to read, depending on the level of your donation. But even at the most minimal level, you're getting all the bonus content. So this month, uh, myself and Alex, we did a Playboys episode, and we did a full hour reviewing uh, Shakespeare's A Winter's Tale. And that is on the A-level syllabus. We're working our way through the A-level ones. They're kind of semi-review, semi-study guide. Um, so we did we did A Winter's Tale. Also with Robert, the third episode of Dark Place Dreamers, all about Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, is out. Uh, we did Skipper the Eye Child, and Robert thought it was absolute nonsense, and I thought it was brilliant. Um, so it's more about getting his reaction to a crazy TV show with Matt Berry and Richard Ayoade and some of your favourites. Uh, and also another interview from The Vault with the amazing singer-songwriter Kim Edwards that I did a decade ago, and I've re-released that on there as well. So you're basically getting a, a minimum of something every week actually on there. I mean, December we put loads up, but usually you're getting a few extra shows per month on there for, for the price of a cup of coffee, so $2.50, $3. So I recommend checking that out. And there's many... And there's many more to come, including a special, which might include a bit more than just two people. So yeah, we have something uh, already in the works for for this month. So hopefully, people will will enjoy that. Is the next book I read? Um, look, you told me to try some Irish literature, and I remember on episode four, Kieran yeah. specifically rec- recommended Iris Murdoch. And um, yeah. so I, I, I saw this one in the Magic Bookshop where I went again this month, by the way, um, oh, and I got Bruno's Dream. Now. Right. I didn't love it, BJ. I didn't love it. I'm I'm sorry. Uh, again, similar to Middlemarch, 
it was all right. You know, I didn't dislike it, um, but I didn't really love it. And as we 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 talked about this, you know, off air, um, it has a weird obsession with sexual themes. You know, for for the character's sake, for no real reason. You know, um, and that is something that struck me as unusual. But it also strikes me as unusual that all the characters have the same sexual obsessions. So. I thought I, you know, I kind of put it down to poor writing, but all the male characters, bar one, are the same, and they have the same perversions, and they have the same. They're all womanizers, and you know, they they all want to sleep with everyone and cheat on everyone and whatever else. Um, and they all even use the same phrase. They never say, "Can I sleep with you?" or "Can we have sex?" It's always, "Can you come to bed with me?" Like that's that exact phrase, but like four different guys are saying it. And I'm like, there's a little bit of lack of awareness there that four people are using like the exact same phrase and they're all doing the same thing. And I just feel like it's a little bit, I don't know. I, I just feel like something's lacking from like good character development. I want to see the different characters behave differently, you know? Yeah, well, well, you know, Iris Murdoch, she did um, study, um, um, she taught and studied and wrote about philosophy and Sartre being one of them, you know, and Sartre was the whole hell is other people philosophy i feel like when i read her book um yes the characters sometimes are very alike but i think that's the point i think the point is she's making a feminist job at saying that you man are doing all the all all the same thing the whole time you're saying the same thing even if you sugarcoat it would say would you like to go to bed give me instead of would you like to f me i think she's making a point that it's all very uh repetitive i find what the, like the, the, the women characters aren't any better though that's the thing mm. yeah and that totally is i agree with like, you there is a lot of there's a lot of um it's a lot about sex her, her books like a lot and mm. also about i suppose also a lot about just kind of broken characters aren't they they're often very broken characters trying to trying to kind con- connect i suppose and not really managing 100 percent mm. So the main character in this one is Bruno. He's kind of an old dying man. He's, he's you know, he, he's almost entirely bedridden. They say at the moment he can still get up to use the toilet and things, but he's more or less bedridden. Um, you know, his his skin's all sagging away. He's just faded away. They talk about this, like, shriveled, monstrous body with this big head, because I guess his head's still normal, you know. Um, and he's he's essentially just, just fading into a way to nothing. Uh, and he's living with Danby, and Danby's a kind of nephew, I guess. Um, and although, you know, although Danby seems to not really be good to anyone else in the novel, he is good to Bruno. Like, he takes Bruno in and he looks after him and he's very happy to do so, you know. And he gets a carer, Nigel, who's like a male nurse kind of kind of uh, chap who's into all this Zen-type stuff. I'll get, I'll get to Nigel in a minute. Um, but they bring him in to look at, to look after Bruno and, and that goes quite well. And Bruno has his stamp collection that's worth a lot of money. But it's never clear that Danby's trying to get the stamp collection, to be honest. He, he doesn't seem to have ulterior motives. He seems to just want to be nice to his relative, you know? Mm-hmm. So you, you like Danby. And there's a girl living with him, Adelaide, who was hired as a kind of maid, as a housekeeper type, type character. And of course, Danby's sleeping with her, but they have this relationship, but he is also still paying her a wage. And it's a secret relationship, but she doesn't do any housekeeping, really. And there's this kind of, okay, she feels that her position is not stable because she's essentially a paid mistress and he could just fire her if he wanted to. She's not his girlfriend. She's not his wife, you know? So she worries. 
Um, which is fine because actually she's already got backups because she knows these two twins, Nigel, who is the the, 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 the carer, and his brother, Will. And she fancies Will. Well, actually, she's in love with both of them as well as Danby, um, but she's mostly in love with Will. And she keeps stringing Will along. She's not sleeping with Will, but she's stringing him along, having a kind of emotional affair. She He keeps thinking that there's a chance. But Will's horrible. Will's awful. He calls her right. names. He threatens to hit her. He tells her to steal one of the stamps so that he can buy a camera. You know, he tries to get her in trouble. He's just not a nice chap. Um, and then we've got, you know, Miles. Now, this chap, Miles, is Bruno's son. They've not seen each other for many, many years. But Bruno says, look, before I die, I would like to see my son. So Danby writes to Miles. And look, everybody, Miles, Danby, Bruno, they all talk about their past loves and how they mistreated all these previous women and how they got it wrong with these different women. And then now we have them all trying to repeat their own mistakes because everyone wants to have an affair with everyone else's woman. So Adelaide's, you know, going to cheat on Danby with Will. Danby seduces Miles' wife, Diana. Diana realizes. Well, don't get too many spoilers, too. Uh, we're not going to the end. Spoilers. We're not going to the end. This is the this is the middle. Diana, this is important. Diana um, <laughs> introduces her sister Lisa into the household, but then her husband Miles falls in love with Lisa. So we've just got like these overlapping Venn diagram love triangle things <laughs> everywhere, and all the characters are more or less the same. And you know, at one point there's even a duel, like it's Dumas, you know. But I'm not I'm not gonna give anything about about really the last quarter or about like what happens at the end. Um I I didn't love it. I didn't love the ending, I didn't mm. think that the book was particularly well written. There's just a lot of people who fall in love very, very quickly because a guy was a bit smarmy, so they you know, and everyone's just we're very willing to cheat. There's there's not really any moral scruples in it. Um and then we have Nigel. <laughs> And Nigel's just very strange. And they have these types of conversations. You know, the world is independent of my will. The sense of it must lie outside of it. Uh, and in the world, everything is as it is and happiness and happens as it does happen. In it, there is no value. And if there were, it would be of no value. And if good and bad willing changes the world, it can only change the limits of the world. Nigel just speaks like a weird philosophy textbook, you know. Um, and it's and they they wonder like what's happening with Nigel. He's doing a lot of drugs. What's his vibe, you know? Um, and then there's some weird stuff with the relationship between Nigel and Will as well. And there's just a lot of the characters react strangely to each other. It does get better as it goes along, to be honest, because we get some very ridiculous scenes where people's love drives them to do ridiculous things in an almost Flaubertian kind of way. Mm. Um, and and it does pick up a little bit and uh, I wasn't sure if I loved the ending as such but you know it's it's fine I just I wouldn't necessarily recommend it because I find a lot of the it's very sexual a lot of the characters are a bit one-dimensional but also very similar you know Mm. so it was fine but I wouldn't read it again okay well, I would re- recommend that you read uh, The Sandcastle if you want to have one more go, or The Italian Girl. Um, I find, I, I haven't read um, this one you read, Bruno's Dream, but I find her books tend to be very, in some sense, my dad would say, my dad would say this, that they're not very memorable, but you're left with an impression, an atmosphere, and certain certain scenes, like there's in Sandcastle, there's a scene where two kids kind of slit the uh, it's quite brutal actually they they slit the the very bottom of their eye 
oh, so that they can cry, and so they can cry blood. Uh, I mean, it's quite brutal, in fact. Um, and then an Italian girl, there's like you just remember that there are two kind of lovers. One of them eats a lot of vegetables. One of them a lot of fruits, but you're supposed to be brothers. You're left mm. with these uh, impressions, and I find it's always very, yeah, it's always very overly sexual, but it's also very brutal, and it just shows how 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 animal you know how animal humans are. That's what I like about mm-hmm. personally. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, yeah. I'm sure she'll be mentioned again at some point this yeah, year. So could um, be, could be, could be. I I read three more books, but I'm going to be honest. I'm really only going to do a review of one of them. Uh, I'm just going to quickly mention what the other two were. Okay, so the first one, um, because these two didn't make a great impression on me either, but the last one I loved. So saving the best for last, I read um, by Apollonius Rudius or Apollonius of Rhodes, the Argonautica. So that's the story of Jason and the Argonauts. Hmm. Uh, this was pretty quick. It was 200 pages. I'll be honest. After the length of time that Middlemarch took me, I was trying to read short books to fit some in. Um, no more no more five, 600 pages. It was like, okay, I've got to read 200 page books here. You know, So Bruno's Dream was only like 300 pages and pretty short. This was 200. Um, I mean, this is a nice translation. It's got the Greek and the, and the English. Oh, um, I love that. I love that. It's lovely. Yeah, it's from the, from the Maclay Library. Um, look, this has... It's it's written a little bit later than the kind of classical Greek period that I usually go in for. It's the story of Jason and the Argonauts, you know, Medea's in there. Jason's trying to get the Golden Fleece and he goes on his little quest. And in the end, um, with the goddess, it's actually easier than fighting her than to just kind of do some tasks and then convince her to marry him. So that it kind of ends nicely for him. Um, but we've got other characters, you know, Hercules is in there at one point near the beginning. But the first half is honestly just them doing their odes and their preparation and going to the Oracle and kind of getting all ready. And then the second half, some stuff actually happens. Um, and look, you, you know what happens when you read this Greek stuff? Like it can be kind of boring in parts, you know, but uh, it's, it's just that, it's that basic story. He gets the fleece. They, it's all happy, but we, we have some similar themes from the Odyssey. Like they mentioned the Cyclops, they mentioned Scylla and, and Charybdis, the two kind of sea monsters. So some, a little bit of rehashing old themes as well in there, you know. Um, but yeah, look, it's fine if you're interested in that kind of thing. I think I've got three books in a row where I would say if you think you like that kind of thing, maybe try it. But I wouldn't especially recommend them, you know. Mm. Okay. Um, and the same I think is going to be said for the next one. Uh, I didn't tell you I'd read this one, La Hojarasca by Gabriel Mar- uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. All right. Okay. No, you haven't. You know oh, this one? Of... No, I haven't read that one. Is that? I think that's one of the earlier ones. What? Right? Yeah. Right. Look, it's early. It's. I think the reason this book is remembered is because it it has one character, um, a, a, a colonel or something. One one character, and also the same town as um as one of the famous ones. I believe one hundred years of solitude. Indeed, so. it's uh, Macondo. So Mac- that's the town of one hundred years of solitude. Yeah. Oh my God! Well, I have to. I would love like, to read that. This is a very short book. We're talking, it's it's less than 200 pages and with big text. Like, I feel like this is about 120 pages. Like it, it's very short, you know. Um, I, I did like it, but at the same time, I didn't love it. And I find it difficult to get into. And I have a problem with these Latin American authors, which is that they never put enough dialogue in their books. And I really, really struggle to read a book that is just narrative without character work and dialogue. And they it's the usual... Tell- 
it's set through multiple generations, so I get a bit confused going back and forward. Um, you know, the book opens with the, with the, with the, the doctor dying, uh, well, he's already dead, and that's kind of a powerful scene. But then, of course, that really takes place later. And um, I don't know. Look, I don't I don't really have a lot to say about it because it is a very quick book, and I don't want to spoil anything because then you've spoiled the whole book. Really, like there's not there's not a lot happens in it just because of its if it's short length. But um, if you've liked Hundred Years of Solitude, for example then you might want to dip into something kind of set in the same world, if it were, you know? Wow. Okay, well, I, I love uh, 100 Years of Solitude, and I think you would love it too, <clears throat> despite the fact that it doesn't have much dialogue. Um, yeah, most Latin American novels, they, they, they do tend to describe uh, generational storytelling uh, yeah. in a generation storytelling mode and 100 Years of Solitude probably has even less um, dialogue wow. I struggle with that you know and I feel it makes me feel bad because I'm trying to read in Spanish and then I'm thinking I'm not enjoying this and I always think my Spanish isn't isn't on point but no when I read some I can read a thousand pages of fun you know and yeah. even when I was reading H.G. Wells War of the Worlds last month in English that was 200 pages and I struggled to get through it because of the lack of dialogue so mm. you know, it's it's not a it's not a language thing. It is just I I, I like characters and and dialogue in my books, mm. and I I do struggle to get through a book that doesn't really have a lot of dialogue. And even when I'm reading it, I'm not taking in what's happening. Um, and well, this one's but- fine. We've got the different generations. You know, there's some bad parts where the girl's forced to marry a guy that she doesn't really she's never met. Not that she doesn't love him, she never met him, and just all the usual kind of stuff. But I I just. I didn't love it, you know. Well, okay. Well, I'd love to read that one. But guys, if you want to get some backdrop for 100 Years of Solitude, Leaf Storm or La Ojarasca. Leaf Storm, yeah. Is, is the book. Honestly, I think that is the main reason anyone would read this book. It's going to be someone who already liked yeah, I think 100 so. Years of Solitude and they want to kind of dip into a little bit extra in the, in the same yeah. kind of universe. I'd say so. Um, this book I loved. Now we we laughed about this during the month. Uh, PJ, oh, yes. I read. <laughs> it's presented here now. You see it, "The Son of Porthos" by Alexandre Dumas. There you go. The man now, himself, or is, is it? it? Well, you open the book and it has a biographical note on Dumas, and it gives me a lot of information about Alexandre Dumas and a picture of Alexandre Dumas. Oh. And in the book, on at least two occasions, he mentions. Our previous work, The Man in the Iron Mask. So he, the, the author is saying, I am Dumas, and this is what happened in the previous book I wrote. But this <laughs> book was written 12 years after Dumas died. So this is not by Dumas. Are you sure he just didn't live a long time? What, <laughs> no, about, this... what about Alexandre Dumas Jr.? I mean, he was around, well, too, wasn't he? It could be, but this book is believed to not be canon, to not be by Dumas, to be just by oh, a no. completely random guy. Uh, and I looked up to see what else this guy wrote, and he wrote a whole bunch of stuff, none of it I'd ever heard of, including one book. It was like The Countess of Monte Cristo or something like that. He wrote like a, like a female version of, of The Count of Monte Cristo. So I thought that was very funny. But I, I, I bet you're going to look out for more of his books. Oh, definitely, yeah. So who, what's, it, what's the guy called? Oh, goodness. I, he's, a, he's kind of a no-name. I didn't even bother to write down his name. It doesn't even say it in the book. Like when you read the book, it, it doesn't Did even say... The- but you enjoyed the book, though. So oh, I loved! I loved the book. It's the best book I read mm. this month. Um, but let me get let me get the name of the chap for you. Um, believed to have been written by Paul Mahallon. 
Well, tell George Eliot to move aside because we've got a new kid in town. Yeah. Right? Everyone, everyone's favorite well-known author, Paul Mahalan. Um <laughs> So, look, this book does not have um, the three musketeers, right? Or D'Artagnan. D'Artagnan's not in it. Um, I'm not going to tell people why. I don't want to spoil things from any of the other books. But D'Artagnan's not in it. Uh, Athos isn't in it. And Porthos isn't in it. The only one who's in it is Aramis. And Aramis is a very old man. Uh, and Aramis has kind of changed in character a little bit. I mean, he was always the sneakiest of the musketeers, but now he's basically the bad guy. Okay. Yeah. So he's plotting. He wants it, you know, he's already like high, high priest of the Jesuits. He wants to become Pope. He's got a lot of political power. He's moved from France to Spain. He wants to do some maneuvering to get control of the French throne now. Um, and he's also going to use Porthos's son as part of that that whole thing but of course he doesn't know it's Porthos's son okay so the son of Porthos is this random guy called Joel and Joel never knew who his dad was but Joel's a big old guy because Porthos was the big strong giant musketeer and he he finds this sword in the spot where Porthos died somehow this like image of of his dad gives him the sword you know and it's a massive sword and on the sword it says um, all for one and one for all engraved on the sword hmm. which is of course the slogan of the musketeers which is actually only ever said once in the whole series of five books oh, really? Really? yeah yeah it's really? in the very first book it's the only time they ever say it um <laughs> until, until now it's on the sword um so that that's cool right and you know he meets the but i love the romance man i love the romance he meets this lovely girl um aurora and, he, you know, he's valiant. So he sees some some guys heckling this girl and he jumps in and he's going to save the day and he's got to brandish his sword and he chases away the bad guys and they're, they're, they're stealing money from people and he, he, you know, he comes in and saves the day. He's very valiant. And this is one of these books where everyone's challenging people to duels left, right and center. And, you know, if you if you say something bad, you know, bad in the presence of a woman, then, you know, I'm going to lay down my gauntlet and we're going to have a duel and we're all going to die. And it, I, I love it. I love the romance of these yeah, books. I like that, yeah. <laughs> and it's very short as well. It's like 200 pages. I think it's very, very short, but maybe 300 at a push. But um, it's the best book I read this month. Like, I, I just I loved it. Aramis's scheming took me a little bit by surprise because I think that he's not quite there in the Three Musketeers. But then again, a lot of years are supposed to have passed. So maybe he's gotten worse, you know, he's taken his worst trait and he's gotten worse and worse, you know, as, as time has gone on. And I guess that's something that could happen. But I love the swashbuckling. I do like that we get to see um, Porthos's son. And I don't want to give nice. any, I don't want to really give spoilers for the ending, but throughout most of the book, Aramis and Joel don't know who and, each other is. And does he, because we did, talk about uh, Alice Automated by Jeff Noon, where he basically pretends to write he, he writes a, a sequel to the two original Alice books. And he did Im- imitate the star very well in the first half, up to the point that it, be- that it became less of an Alice story. Did this author also imitate Dumas, Dumas Senior style very well? Or yes. Or did you feel that? Yeah. Yes, excellently. You would think this oh, really was good. Dumas. Like it's believably by Dumas. Yeah, it's very, very well done. Um, My only criticism is that it rushes a lot near the end. Like Dumas' books would typically be longer than this. And this book starts out quite slow in the usual way. Slow but exciting. Dumas is a master of that. 
Um, but then just kind of near the end, it just like all rushes and it's like, you know, okay, everything's got to wrap up in the next 50 pages. Like, I don't, I don't know why it kind of gets so quick, you know, but um, look, it's lovely. You don't get to see too many of the characters, you know, but I mean, look, look at the kind of romantic scenes where Joe, this girl, he's only met like two days ago. And he's saying, you know, that he would lay down his life for her and shed all the blood in his body to protect her. And she's in love with him. And there's this a nice scene um, where there's, there's going to be a wedding. So they, they put Joel in jail. And it becomes very reminiscent of the Count of Monte Cristo at that point. And um, he doesn't know that he's getting let out. So they take him to a wedding um, because they want to use him as a pawn in their political game. But he thinks he's been taken to his execution. So there's, a, there's nice comic scenes where he's saying, like, I know the last meal is supposed to be kind of fancy, but like, I'm in a palace. Like, where have they taken me? And and they're, they're always talking across purposes where he's like, oh, the big day's here and they mean the wedding and he means that, you know, that he's being killed. Oh, right, okay. I'm losing my freedom. <laughs> so, and so, like, yeah. <laughs> sounds very Woodhousian again. There's a, there's a bit of that, yeah. And they're, they're kind of speaking, because, you know, this old-fashioned sexist idea that when you get married, you kind of lose your freedom and you're, you know, so they're, they're saying that kind of stuff, but he thinks it's about him dying, you know, so it, that's quite yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah. That's quite funny. <laughs> wow, I'd love to read it. Right, and it's, what's the book called again? The Son of Porthos. Um, my favorite bit from the whole book. Someone says, and what might your name be? And he says, I'm not sure what it might be, but it is Joel. I love that. I don't know why. I don't know why I love that so much. But it just, it is hilarious. Is um, that a phrase you're going to start using? <laughs> I think so, right? I think so. There's, there's a lovely little chap called Friquette, who's a kind of, I guess they describe him as like a kind of dwarf essentially like he's a very short person but he's high up and he's in the military and things like he's an important person but he's very very hot-headed because people are always making fun of his height and when they meet in the tavern and he wants some food and Porthos wants to share his food and they have a duel and they're gonna fight and the landlord's in on the duel and the barman's in on the duel and they're all gonna have a big fight and then they all become best friends and now they're friends for life and they're they love each other platonically and they help each other out in the army later on like i just love the, the bonds that these people form over a duel or over meeting in one day you know that that romance it's it's amazing and this is written very very excellently exactly like the the duma uh, the whole series of duma books so it's if if you've read the five you know three musketeers series and you just thought it would be lovely if there was a little bit more, then this is essentially a very early example of fan fiction um, that is just perfect. I think it would be interesting also to now check out Alexander Dumas Jr.'s book, because, I mean, uh, I'm just wondering if there's anything... You know, yeah, I don't, I don't know, know a lot about, about, about Junior, to, to be perfectly honest. But he is an author, and he was an author, and I do see his books from time to time, especially in second-hand bookshops in the French section, so at least in, in the original French, it's relatively popular, so mm. I think. Okay, well, I've also. never I've never tried it, to be honest, well, but I, I love to, I mean, this is this is this is risky business, but I would maybe put Dumas almost on, like, if Dickens is 100%, Dumas is, like, 99. Like, it's it's really, I, I think that Dumas is a very, very special author. Well, um, so. The only reason I can't quite time with Dickens is because I've read all of Dickens and I've really only read a certain amount of Dumas, so it wouldn't be Mm. fair. Like, he could have a couple of terrible books in there, for all I know. And that's the problem, Mm. you know? Mm. Well, we'll see then when you've read them. I'm sure you will. (laughs) Well, Well, I will. I've got got one on my shelf to go to, but... Well, let me tell you what I read. I I also read, after um, The Fifth Mountain, I read the first two plays of the Dublin Trilogy by Sean O'Casey. So Sean O'Casey being a big man for for Ireland, 
becoming Ireland. So written, mm-hmm. so he's basically a self-taught, um, well, you know, kind of a politician kind of figure, but he just, just started writing plays. He wasn't really educated, but he started writing plays around the Easter Rising time of Ireland when Ireland started to want to become independent and want to not be a British satellite state, basically. Yeah. Um, or under British rule. And he, he writes the Dublin trilogy, which is very much celebrated in at least in the Republic of Ireland. And it consists of three plays. And so I've read the first two. The first one is The Shadow of a Gunman, followed by Juno and the Paycock. And the third one is The Plug and the, Plug and the Stars. And the last two particular are often are often at the Abbey Theatre uh, played in Irish theatres. Now, uh, The Shadow of a Good Man is a great story, slightly, slightly, I would say, easier to produce than the other two. Uh, it's, it's basically set around the um, Civil War period, but they're not soldiers. It's just a poet living with another man, basically. He doesn't really do anything particular, tries to just earn money. And there's a lot of um, the, the Irish War is kind of behind the scenes, so it's all set in the in one of the man's room, Mister Shields, Mister Shields' room, and you hear a lot behind what's going on. And Mister Shields has a friend called Mister Mulligan, who's in the who's in the well, let's just say he's kind of involved with the kind of involved with things going on outside. I can't okay. spoil anything. Uh, it does use um, Chekhov's gun methods. In this Chekhov's gun, uh, excuse, uh, yes, Chekhov's gun method in the sense of there is a prop element. Chekhov's gun is when you've got a gun on the stage, you, it's got to be shot at some point. And yeah. there's a lot, Hitchcock plays a lot with that notion, right? So there's object there and there's something's going to be, it's going to be meaningful. It has to be used for something. It's used in Psycho, for example, with a suitcase of money at the beginning. Yes. Uh, but Chekhov started this and Sean O'Casey, he's, don't get me wrong, he's a very well read, very, I think an intellectual, but very much self-made intellectual, very typical of Ireland at the time. And so very much uh, there is a suitcase in the, in, in the play. So Mr. Mr. Mulligan leaves a suitcase behind. Uh, he just comes in to visit, says he can't come. He was going to do something with Mr. Shields, something related to work. And just, he just has to go. And then it turns out that he's, he's killed and it's on the newspaper and everyone just forgets about that suitcase in, in the room. And that's very relevant because people start to believe that the poets living with Mr. Shields is involved with the IRA. So the Irish Republican Army. Right. And he kind of plays he kind of plays along with it because a certain attractive woman called Minnie Powell. Um, seems to find it very romantic and exciting that he might be in the IRA. And he doesn't admit it ever, but he's kind of playing along, just flirting away. Which, which, and people from, from, the, from the building asking for favors, and he's just kind of playing along with it to humor Minnie, which I'm afraid le- leads to some dire consequences when the, you know, when the black tans, basically the, Let's say Black Tans, for those who don't know, is the name given to the basically British police, just making sure that um, British police making sure that everything's in order in Ireland and they're considered very vicious because they also did kill a lot of you know, innocent Irish people. So it's mentioned in a lot of Irish folk songs. Um, not a nice thing to, to call them, but I suppose Black and Tans because they wore 
black and khaki colored clothes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so it is very much about that. It, it becomes very violent. The second act, of course, when 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 these two guys and the whole building actually becomes, let's say, attacked by black and tan, looking looking for RA uh, soldiers, and yes, tragedy strikes in in very dire consequences. And the whole Dublin trilogy is really tragic. It's just Dublin, Dublin in Dublin during the Civil War and and just or just after. And it's quite it's quite cynical actually. So it's really cynical. The characters are described. I I think James Joyce. I, I don't feel like James Joyce really had that much love of Irish culture. He made a lot of fun of it. I think uh, Sean O'Casey did have, let's say, too much love. So he's not making fun of these people that that often seem very very vulgar. But I think he's just making a point that well, it's very sad that these lovely people turn out these vulgar, this vulgar because of poverty, because of repression. And this theme continues on with the next play, Juno and the Peacock. Peacock being the Irish pronunciation of peacock. Juno is a woman who has to deal with her husband, who's a peacock. He keeps kind of showing off around town. He's a drunk, really. Pretends to be a soldier, pretends to be a kind of a has to be a bit of an Ishmael kind of figure, a bit of a captain, and he just hasn't really. He just, I think he just, he just drove with a boat from Dublin to Wales or something ridiculous. And he's a ridiculous character, Captain Jack Ball, the husband of Juno, and he always walks around with Joxer, who's a man who is kind of like he just takes advantage of of Captain Jack Ball. He just drinks with him, um, makes sure he gets paid for everything. Uh, it's kind of like a leech parasite s character, and it's basically about Juno and her family, and uh, that everyone is suffering because not just not so clearly the war in this time. I, I don't. F- it's set during the Irish Civil War, but I don't feel it's as as um, action filled right. as the previous play. This is more just about simply about the society, and that she's got uh, a drunk husband. Um, a son who was almost killed and who and who became maimed and he's now living there and he's actually like traumatized and he finds loud noises deeply disturbing and he and she's got a, uh, she's got a daughter who's who's quite well read and cons- and wants to really move further in life but she gets manip- manipulated by a seemingly nice gentleman and it's the irony is the seemingly nice gentleman is actually maybe in some sense the most careless character of all even though he's, he talks about like being a yogi and being, um, I think he's a pantheist and, or mm-hmm. he has some kind of different notions. And the, the point is though, at the end of the first act, the family thinks they're going to earn a lot of money because a cousin is giving his cousins uh, all his, his money. He just, wait, because he died. So he's got, um, the cousin is giving the cousins the money and and Captain Jack Boy is delighted he, he he doesn't wait for the money to come. He just buys as much stuff as possible and says uh, he will give the money back to everyone. Um, okay. Tragedy is little spoiler, guys. Um, although it might seem obvious as well, the the money never comes uh, because literally the cousin did give his money to his cousins, but that meant cousins all over the world, first, second, third removed. So it's a bit of a comedic element. There is more comedy in Juno and the Pie Pie Cock, although it's also more brutal. Again, the ending, what happens. 
Um, I can't say much much more except it's again revolves around RA and yes, but also about alcoholism. I find not not just about the Irish Civil War right now. It's also about just the Irish people having a big um, having starting to become starting to have bad habits, drinking too much, uh, being too military, ever having guns and all the young men dying, maybe the woman uh, being too naive and being um, being too attracted to like, oh, this lovely gentleman who studies in England. So it is more of a social critical play, whereas the other one is very much, I, I, it, it's a bit more action filled, I find. Now, I'd love to talk about the next one, but I hadn't finished it yet. Finished yet. So that will be for the next episode, the third part, Blowing the Stars, which so far is even more vicious and a bit hard to read, I find. So right. I'll see if I, I'm not sure if I'm enjoying it that much. But I do love The Shadow of a Gunman and Juno Dreykog. They were absolutely wow, okay. amazing. It's not something I would have ever thought to read, so that's uh, that's an interesting uh, recommendation. It's really powerful, though. Really powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, Signs yeah. it. Yeah. Sean O'Casey. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.